So that's when product market fit matters so much. Mm. Because now what's going to happen is for the first time, everybody has budget for the new thing. They, before they didn't. You had to cr help create budget. Now they do. And they're going to buy it. If you, when people have budget, they spend it. Yep. So, so, yep. so if they don't spend it on you, they're going to spend it on your competitor. Yeah. So it creates this amazing knife fight. When the category takes off, it really is a battle royal for market share. Because what's going to happen is, in any category, there's always a number one, number two, and then kind of all others. Yeah. And if you're number one, the world will organize around you. Yeah. And, and, and you, you, you have, have a target on your back. You, well, but, but, but it, it, not only that, partners bring you deals, yeah. customers prefer you, you're the safe buy. Yeah. People hate you, yeah. but they hate you and buy you. I'm Sangram Vajray. And I'm Brian Brown, co-authors of Move, the four-question go-to-market framework. Jeffrey Moore is the godfather of marketing. He's the author of several books, including Crossing the Chasm, Inside the Tornado, and many more. He has been instrumental in helping shape my book, Move, the go-to-market framework. And you will soon hear why in this episode. This is a masterclass on how you go to market giving you deep insights into problem, product, and platform market fit. Jeffrey Moore takes us on a journey back to the 90s while reminding us all how we got here. Be sure to check out both part one and part two of my conversation with Jeffrey Moore. All right, Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining me and, and sharing so much time. You have been so instrumental in getting the book done and even just walking through it in many ways. And actually, I don't know if you remember this, but in the beginning, when we shared the book, the framework had marketing, marketing and sales, and then finally, in the platform market fit, uh, marketing, sales, and customer success. And you were the one who actually challenged that and said, you know what, the order is wrong here. If you really are a platform market company, you need to put customer success yeah. ahead of marketing yeah. sales. Yeah. Talk to me about like what, what got you thinking about that. Well, this is a bigger change because I, I would say that the, that that prior order was the order that I grew up with. It was a, in the 80s and the 90s. It was all about product, and it was market, sell it. By the way, after you sell it, drop it off, have a partner implement it, and move on. And customer success was the customer's problem, yeah. not yours. All you had to do is say the product worked. What's happened in this century is the power equation has shifted. The customer is much more powerful. The supply chain is much more uh, accessible uh, from multiple sources. So all of a sudden, you, you can maintain a connection to the customer for upsell, resell, ongoing relationships, reducing churn, retention, all those things. That's a customer success problem. Yeah. And th so, that, so that brought customer success out of the back office into the front office. Because remember, it used to be called customer support. Yeah. It could be in the basement. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and, and now it was out front. And then I think what we're discovering in, the, in, this, in this decade, and I think part of your book is about this, is, hey, guys, your best point of contact with your customer is not your salespeople. It is your customer success people. And so you need to be rethinking about what is the customer really trying to accomplish? What business value are they really trying to get? And how can you 
align with that as opposed to trying to jam them into your product. Yeah. So the old model was just jam them into your product and yeah. move on, right? So. I love how you said that like customer success was customer's problem. <laughs> like they need to be successful. They need to figure it out. We just sold them the product. And that makes sense because at that time, SaaS wasn't even a thing. It was like, hey, you bought something, it's, it's on, By the way, it would go on-prem. And by the way, you know, you think about the difference between SaaS and on-prem and the, there were a lot of other issues about switching costs and whatever, but by far the biggest deal was if you installed an on-premise software product, yeah. at, let's say release five, the one thing you knew for sure is you would never install release six, mm. and you prayed you didn't have to install release seven, <laughs> because because it was just it was that much it was like open heart surgery every time you did it. Secondly, if you were the vendor, you, the quality problem was a nightmare because no two installations were ever alike, mm. and, and particularly if you had an integrator come in and do some customization, yeah. so so your ability to to track quality was impossible. And then you couldn't release it. You'd, you'd release innovation. By the way, the customer would pay you for maintenance. Yeah. Specifically, not to install your product. <laughs> so I mean, it, it, the success was nowhere near the equation. At that wow, point. that's a that's a great history lesson. And I know we were talking to Nick Meta about it. And like when customer success, he was talking about 2013, 2014. But what you really gave us a history lesson is like, oh my God. And, and by the way, we shouldn't. I mean, look, in the 1990s, we brought the global economy into existence with product on prem. I mean, that was client server, that was SaaS, that was Oracle, that was Cisco, Intel, Microsoft. I mean, God bless. Yeah. But it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. I was an IT nightmare. And the user, we have user experience. I mean, basically, when something went wrong with the computer, it was your fault. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was the user experience. You program. don't know what you're doing. <laughs> your fault. Yeah. Well, let's go back in time. I want to hear about the story of crossing the chasm. Now, yeah. when, uh, when I was doing the research for this book, everyone said, have you talked to Jeffrey Moore? Have you talked to Jeffrey Moore? Is it okay if I do this? Yeah. Okay if I have a drink during this thing? Okay, well, yeah. I'm going to do it. So <laughs> yeah, you can like, do it. Start again. I, I'm trying. I interrupt you. Yeah. Okay, start again. So everybody was in the research of the book. Uh, everybody was like, why haven't you talked to Jeffrey Moore? Because he wrote Crossing the Chasm. And admittedly, I was like, oh, I know that book, but who's Jeffrey Moore? And he's like, well, he's the author of the book. He oh. wrote it. I'm like, oh, my God, I, I need to, to do this. And I'm so grateful that I'm, we actually that we ho hopped on a call and, and we talked oh, to good. you. And, and by the way, my job is to sort of try to reconnect. I mean, look, there's a time for everything. And then after that, it's like, well, who is that guy? Yeah. But so going back to crossing where it started. Um, so I, first of all, my first career was as an English professor. So I was an English professor. We we're teaching. Uh, I was teaching English uh, at a small college in Michigan. And our family decided we needed to be back in the Bay Area. So I, we just kind of uprooted and came back. And there was no jobs in academics. So I joined a software company. And I subsequently got into sales and marketing. I was with uh, two other software companies. But, but the second and third start, were startups, venture-backed startups. And in both companies, I sort of took a product into the chasm and it didn't get out. What, what year was this? What well, this is the 80s. This is the okay. 80s. So, so then I joined a company called Regis McKenna, which was the, the premier marketing agency of the time. It was a really great place to be. And I kept, and they had incredible successes. This was Apple, this was, you know, Tandem, Intel, great stuff. But I noticed our portfolio, you know, we'd have all these incredible launches, and then it would be like, well, what happened? Where, where are they now? And, and so, so I began to interrogate that and investigate it, and that's where the chasm sort of came out, because it was like, oh, there's early adopters, and there's the early majority, and they don't reference each other. Because the assumption was, get your early customers, they'll be your references for the majority. Right. Everybody knew the majority needed references. It turned out it didn't work because the early customers 
were visionary. They were wanted to be different. They wanted to go ahead of the herd. They didn't want to hang out with the herd, and yeah. the herd thought they were dangerous. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they were the what, mavericks. They it, were the it, risk takers. It, it, exactly. I, I want my. I, 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 you do it. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> yeah. so, so that's where the chasm came from, and and I, that was my contribution. The technology adoption life cycle was already out there. Regis mm-hmm. had made that uh, popular, but the chasm was the piece that I added to it. So when you discovered that the chasm existed, how did you go about researching, is this really a problem? Is this for more companies? And how did that get so widely adopted where there are like millions of people reading yeah, this it book was, now? It was kind of cool. So, so first of all, the way you do this stuff, the way, at least the way I do this stuff, is you make up an answer. Basically, the only research I ever did was I would show up every day at work. So the good news is Regis had a whole bunch of companies coming through it. So you got real-world experience, which in some ways is a big advantage over an academic. So Clay Christensen became a good friend. Mm. He was a professor at Harvard, Innovator's Dilemma, incredible book. But even Clay has to do research from the point of view of a professor, which means he gets invited at a certain level, and he gets a very curated picture of things that's kind of orchestrated by the company. When you're a consultant, you're in the middle of this stuff, it's a, it's a madhouse, as you yeah, know, right? Yeah, it's a mess. And, just, just, ah! and, and so you really see what's going on. Yeah. So that was incredibly valuable. And so I had some colleagues uh, that, were, that were very helpful. We put together, a, okay, how do, you, how do you nail this problem? And, and, and the strategy that came out was, you, you know, we need to focus on that first beachhead segment mm-hmm. of all the stuff that Crossing the Chasm talks about. And so we built a checklist around, you know, target market customer, com- compelling reason to buy, whole product. We had this nine-point checklist. That checklist still, 30 years later, is the same checklist. Wow. So it, was, it, just, it just worked. And, uh, and so that was really fun. That was really That's fun. really cool. Yeah. So, so in the book, we talked about these three stages, and I love for you to map it back to all the research of years, because when we were doing that, it was so cool. It, this is very cool. So, so the thing that I loved about, the first thing I got attracted to with, with the MOVE book was this progression from problem market fit, product market fit, platform market fit. And I just went, that's really cool. And part of the reason it's really cool is, well, it corroborates what I think. Yeah. <laughs> but, but so the way that fits with the, the life cycle work that I've been doing is in the early market, you actually have none of those three. What you have is breakthrough technology that has amazing possibilities, but you're a solution looking for a problem. Mm. And in the early market, you don't know what the problem is. In fact, your customer invents the problem with you. They say, oh, that's amazing. You know, I think we could use it for this. Yeah. And you go, wow, okay, let's try it. Yeah. And, and then somebody else says, well, I got another idea. I think you can use it for that. Yeah. Okay, well, let's yeah. try that. And so in the early market, you're doing these experiments where you're celebrating the technology and its possibilities and your customers, what makes early adopters so wonderful is they bring the application to you, yeah. not the other way around. And, if you th- and so that's fine, but of course that doesn't scale, right? So crossing the chasm is actually about finding problem market fit. Because what you're looking for is a use case in a segment that is compelling enough, urgent enough, that a pragmatist who normally is saying, I don't think it's ready for prime time yet, is going, Oh, you can solve this problem? Yeah. Oh, okay. It's like, it's like getting diagnosed with something. There's a clinical trial? I'm going to go for it. I'll, I'll, I'll do that. Right? Yeah. That's problem market fit. And, and the key thing for, an, uh, for uh, a disruptive innovation at that time is you've got to go all in mm. on a problem. And frankly, there was, there was a lot of anxiety in the client base for a long time about what if I pick the wrong problem? Yeah. It turns out picking any problem is better than picking no problem. Yeah. And by the way, going all in is critical because you've got, you got to nail the problem. So that was problem market fit. That was crossing the chasm. 
Well, then, then I went, when the, so Crossing Casting, by the way, came out. HP asked me to work with them. And it was great. And I was working with all these innovative products there. And then they said, well, you should go to Boise with our laser printers. So I go to Boise and they say, well, Chasm, we're shipping a million printers a month. Yeah. <laughs> There's no Chasm. No Chasm here. But, but let me tell you about our problems. Yeah. And that led to a book called Inside the Tornado. And the tornado is the opposite of the chasm. The tornado is, instead of everybody going, oh, I don't know, are you going to do it? I'm not going to do it. You. Tornado is, you're doing it, you're doing it, you're doing it. Oh, my God, i got to do it, too. Yeah. So every, it creates this huge amount of demand. So that's when product market fit matters so much. Mm. Because now what's going to happen is, for the first time, everybody has budget for the new thing. They, before, they didn't. You had to cr help create budget. Now they do. And they're going to buy it. When people have budget, they spend it. Yep. So, so, yep. so if they don't spend it on you, they're going to spend it on your competitor. Yep. So it creates this amazing knife fight. Right? Yep. And this is where, by the way, all the 90s uh, iconic companies in the 90s were incredible street fighters. Yeah. So, I mean, Cisco, Oracle, Sun. I mean, oh, yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. <laughs> right, Kim Keller. Uh, the killer, killer fighters. By the way, Salesforce really wasn't a 90s company. Mark was at... Oracle. During the yeah, 90s. and then yeah. he left yeah, and yeah, started yeah, Salesforce. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's kind of doing that one. But my, but but that point, product market fit is really really key, because that's what gets you. It's effectively the land part mm. in a land and expand motion. Right. And then, so then that, that was very cool. So I was looking at your problem market fit, problem, uh, product market fit. I'd never thought about platform market fit. I thought, well, wait, hang on. Once you get ubiquitous with a product, now you have an opportunity to become a platform. Right. But the way you monetize and organize a platform is very, very different from the way you monetize an, a, 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 a product. Mm. And so watching, and I, I guess you, know, you inspired me to go back and think about some examples of, yeah. well, how does that work with various types of clients? But, but in a platform world, you're making a marketplace mm. for third parties, and you're giving them access to the installed base that you created with product market fit. But now you're, 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 you're developing that to a whole different level with platform economics as opposed to product economics. And platform economics, I mean, if you look at the, at the trillion dollar valuation companies, yeah. they're, they're, it's all based on platform, platform economics. I mean, you, it almost feels like you can become that big of a company unless you cross the chasm, to use your phrase, um, from even each one of them, from problem to product, there is right. a huge chasm, right. and then from product to platform, it feels like there's a huge chasm in between. Right, and, and by the way, from I think you can control. First of all, I always think you can cross the chasm. Yeah. I, I mean, if you fail, if, you, if you, that playbook works in, in so many different circumstances, there's almost like no excuse for not crossing yeah. the chasm. From going from the chasm to the tornado, if your product doesn't become uh, horizontal and ubiquitous. There's no tornado. Mm. So if you're a very specialized, you know, I do high-performance computing for weather systems, God bless you. You're across the chasm. You're a real company. But you're like a Ferrari. You're not like a, like a Toyota. Mm. That's not going to happen. So then getting to, so that it's a very, it's a different, it's clearly a subset that gets to go to the tornado. Well, now when you go from product to platform, it's a real subset. Yeah. I mean, there are probably... 10 platform companies, maybe 50. There's not 30. There's certainly not 100. So let's talk about some examples. What examples in your mind are companies that are in problem market fit, maybe in product market fit that you're working on, or even in platform market fit? Well, it's fun. So what I did, I cheated. As an old person, I get to have it. Yeah, you can have it. You can refer to it. I cheated. So I wanted to take three companies and try to apply it to all three. Let's do it. Apple, Amazon, and Netflix, because they're all companies everybody knows. So with Apple, and this is back in the day when I was at Regis, so Steve came out with a Macintosh. Yeah. It was the computer for the rest of us. It was going to be for everybody. Well, but there's an IBM PC out there that everybody already had. Yeah. 
So it, it, the early adopters fell in love with it. Yeah. And everybody else is going, no, no, we're an IBM shop. How are you going to cross the chasm? Turns out the desktop publishing and, and sort of presentation, the marketing department in enterprises were desperate for a computer that would help them with their work. Mm. And the IBM PC had zero chance of doing it because it had to be graphically elegant. Yeah. And there was no way to do that. So, des and Steve hated desktop publishing because he said, no, it's a computer for everybody. It's not a yeah. computer for the graphics department. Yeah. But the graphics department application got it inside the enterprise. Mm. Once it got inside the enterprise, then the marketing people said, well, I, that, I, I'll I use want that. It. Then the sales guy said, well, I, I can make a presentation on the road. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I want that. And, and so that's how they got across the chasm. So then you think, so then Steve, had, Steve leaves, and, and there's a, Apple goes through a kind of a dark period. But when he comes back, and by the way, when he comes back, he's, again, he's got to do problem market fit again because yeah. Macintosh now is like, what, 2% of the market? It's nothing. So he, he takes the Macintosh and he makes it into a iMac. Mm. And the cool thing about the iMac was, oh, you're on the internet, nobody knows you're a Macintosh. Yeah. Right? You, could be, it, it, it was, you could be anything. So all of a sudden, instead of being this very limited, restricted set of software you could use, you had the whole internet to use. So that was yeah. really cool. But then, where Steve really shined, and where, where you just go, I don't think there's any, been anybody in tech who shined as much at product market fit mm -hmm. as Steve Jobs. So the iPod was like, yeah. holy. And then the iPhone. The iPhone was probably the most mind-blowing product of my career. Yeah. Just like, holy smoke. Changed the game. I iPad. So, so he did product market fit. And that's when Apple, and it was so funny because, because you know, it, at some point it was like, Apple's the, the new Windows. I mean, it's like, wait a minute. You, I thought we were supposed to use Microsoft and yeah. occasionally use Apple. No, other way around, dude. Apple occasionally Microsoft. And if you're using <laughs> Apple, you're like the smart one. Yeah, you're yeah, like the, you're, the you're, one you're, that you're, you're ahead of the you're, curve. You're, you're there. So, so, so product market fit, and they got, they got an enormous amount of ubiquity. Enormous. And particularly then if you did iPhone, the iPhone became incredibly ubiquitous. Yeah. Um, and, and, and of course the iPod. So then you say, well, what about platform though? Mm. Well, platform is actually post-Steve. So the platform for Apple it's not the product, it's the, it's the ecosystem. ecosystem. So it's iTunes, yeah. and it's the App Store, and it's Apple Pay, and now we do Apple Pay Later, you know, and now we're, and, and, and you know, you buy now, pay later kind of stuff. So, so the platform, is, if you look at the revenue of where Apple's coming from, it's coming from the services, not from the, from the product. Yeah. I mean, there's huge product revenue, but, right. but still the services is where the, and the margins in the services are just massive, astronomical. So that's kind of Apple's version of that. With Amazon, I think the first problem that Bezos saw was, if you looked at the book selling industry, it's a horrible business model. Even if you would do Blockbuster, because there was Barnes and Noble and there was, there was uh, Borders, but horrible model because you had to have massive amounts of inventory, yep. most of which you returned to the publisher at the end of the, uh, the thing. And, and if, you, if you, by the way, you had to drive. I, when I was teaching Michigan, we lived in a town called Olivet, Michigan. We would drive three hours to go to Borders. Well, that's. You know, I, I was an English major. I needed yeah. to be at a bookstore. But, but the problem was, that's not a very good model for borders. Right, right. right. So, so, so Bezos comes in, and he, and he kind of solves it. And he, the thing that was cool about books from e-commerce was, because it was really new, you don't have to try on a book. Mm. You don't send back a book and return it. Yeah. I mean, so it was really good model for that thing. So that was, that was his sort of problem market fit. You probably then, don't even make enough money on it. To, to begin with. Well, you, well the problem is you, there's good margin in the book, but, there's, but by the time you have all the inventory and the retail and space 
and the employees that you have to have to, to yeah. maintain, it's just it's a crappy model. But if you could say, well, I don't carry inventory, mm -hmm. I have no returns, mm -hmm. and I have no employees that are customer facing, yeah. well, that, that sounds now pretty you got good. a high margin. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. sounds pretty good. So then the, the product market fit was Kindle. I mean, the, the, the whole ebook, because you remember Sony was trying to do an ebook, even Apple wanted to do an ebook, but, but, but Bezos nailed the book because he yeah. said it's not going to be anything else. I can it's see the parallel between Steve Jobs and this, like when you think about like Kindle for Amazon, yeah, yeah. and then at the same time you think about iTunes. Exactly. It's literally the same. And, 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 and now we have you know, Amazon Prime. Yeah. So talk about, I, mean, I don't know, do you use Amazon Prime? Absolutely. Why we, we have something at our front door every day. Why don't we, we don't just even know. send your paycheck to Bezos <laughs> and be done with it? I mean, it's, it's, so, so again, the platform kind of thing. And then the third example I thought of was, because I know Reed Hastings at Netflix. So, so his first problem was, back in the day, we were all using Blockbuster Video. Yeah. So couple, again, a little bit of the bookstore problem. Do they have availability? Do they have selection? But then they had these late fees. Mm. And it would just drive you crazy because you hadn't returned the, the, the thing and you got charged all these late fees. So his first solution to that was, hey, first of all, I'm gonna mail it to you. It's a DVD and there are no late fees. Yeah. Okay. That was pretty cool. Uh, then, then, he, then he, so he builds his whole business around DVDs. His Salesforce ecosystem, well, yeah, there is, and they call this, the, 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 his platform for that was called Trailblazers. Mm -hmm. So Trailblazers was actually an education platform inside of Salesforce to train you on the product. And they, he turned it inside out, and there's now Mike Trailhead. Mm -hmm. and, and, there's, and that is, anybody can use this platform to train on anything in any ecosystem. And they created these, these uh, trailblazers who were the Salesforce administrators, kind of like Cisco had Cisco certified engineers, and Novell had Novell certified engineers. So there was, there was a history of networking for doing it, but nobody had ever done it in, in applications. So now this is whole economy, they call it the Salesforce economy, it's huge. Yeah. And, and so, and so, and, and then I think he adds to that, he's done something else, because he says business is the platform for social change. Yeah. And which, which, that's part of my inspiration from him. And so, because at a time when, frankly, our politicians are not leaning in in any way that I respect, he is. And by the way, it's not just him. It's Tim Cook at Apple, yeah. and it's, it, it's a lot of folks, uh, Satya at, at Microsoft, et cetera. So, um, but, but I think the Salesforce thing, the, cusp, the big revolution for them, and it happened more recently, would think, is, hey, guys, we need to get better at customer success. Mm. So, because we've had, because we paint these big visions, our customers buy into the vision. They come to Dreamforce, which is like going to Disneyland. <laughs> and watching Mark Benioff yeah, do a commercial like, whoa, on his face. Whoa, whoa, and Astro and you know, yeah. all these cartoon characters. And this is really great, right? And then you come home and you go, well, wait, wait a minute. What it's, happened? Yeah, yeah, wait, 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 what happened? So, so, so again, redefining the go-to-market motion from the, back, from the customer back as opposed to from the product forward. forward. Uh, and, and you still have to launch products. I mean, yeah. it's, it's not, it, nothing's gone away. But just that notion of saying, if they don't get the business value out, sooner or later, you're going to pay for that. Yeah. So let's work backward from the business value as opposed to forward from monetizing our product. I love that. And then getting customer success aligned, sales aligned, marketing aligned, product aligned. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Totally does that. Now, I, I ran marketing at Pardot, uh -huh. when, uh, when, and Pardot got acquired by Exact Target, and, and then Exact, Exact Target. Target got acquired by Salesforce. So I feel like I went from a 100-people company within six months into this gigantic, iconic brand. Yeah. And I remember uh, uh, I, I had a, his, his name was Kevin Babaski, who I reported into, and he said, now that you're part of ET, when the first acquisition yeah. happened, he said, think 10X. Whatever you were thinking about Pardot, that's 1X, now you're part of ET, think 10X. I'm like, okay, I got that. 
six months later, when Exact Target got acquired uh, by Salesforce, he came back to me and said, Sangram, forget everything I said about TEDx. Think 100x. And it, it, Jeffrey, it took me a while to understand that what he was really saying is that think about the way Salesforce is going after the market. It's not about how much money you're spending, but how they, they, how they treat and think about their customers, yeah. about the future of social change. Everything that they're launching is in a much bigger way. And, and I don't think many companies even think about I it. Don't, I don't, you know, the, the most companies, and certainly if you were raised in, a, in, in the generation with my playbook, the, 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 the generation playbook I grew up with, you were supposed to think about your job is to make money, your job is to you know, reward your investors, you know, you, you got to work within your budget. Industries grow at three or four percent, maybe you grow at eight or nine percent. I mean, it was that kind of a box. And, and I think, and, and so you learn what we call performance metrics. So you learn to say, okay, so, you know, what was my gross margin? What was my net margin? You know, how, how did I, you know, and you measure, measure all these ratios. But they're performance matrix and, and you sh and you report them out every quarter. And, yeah. and you'd get, you'd get your, your quarterly report out of SAP or out of, uh, you know, out of Oracle or PeopleSoft or whatever it was. And you, you're always kind of managing a little bit in the rear view mirror, but you say, but it didn't change that much. You say, okay, we're gonna incrementally, we're gonna do this or do that going, going forward. Well, what's happened in this century is that because these markets can develop so much faster, and part of that is SaaS, and part of it's cloud, and part of it's mobile, and there's all these technologies, it's incredibly important to have leading indicators. Wow. Well, leading indicators are power metrics, not performance metrics. And so when you, hold, when you manage a company to power metrics, you're talking about, I need you to show me that you're creating new positions of power. I have confidence that will convert to performance. Yeah. So if we handle our power correctly, we will inherit the performance. I love if that we power performance. Yeah, if we obsess on performance, the yeah. problem is we actually are consuming our power and we're, we're actually cashing out our brands, what yeah. we're doing. Because we're not working on power, so we're not renewing the power. We're just essentially extracting more and more resource. And eventually, your customer goes, well, okay, we're, we're done. Um, yeah, yeah. And by the way, Zone to Win, this book that I'm, that I'm spending time with established companies on, 56 iconic tech companies listed in the first chapter that do not exist. I mean, these people crushed it. Yeah. I mean, but, it, but it's Deck, it's Wang, it's Sun, it, 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 it's, it's all these companies you go, holy smoke, what happened to them? And the answer is they focused on performance and eventually they sucked the, you know, all yeah, the juice. Well, they sucked all the juice out of the lime or they squeezed it, whatever <laughs> it was, but then there was no more.